Welcome to the MindGut Conversation, the bi-monthly interview series with experts in the field of health and lifestyle. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Robert Lustig, New York Times bestselling author of Fat Chance and author of the recent book, The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains. Dr. Lustig is a professor of pediatrics in the division of endocrinology at the University of California in San Francisco and a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the same institution. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lustig. Thank you so much for having me, Ermarin. It's really a delight. We, uh, we don't get uh, uh, to talk very often, so this is a special pleasure. Yeah, no, this is a great opportunity. So before we get started, I want to say um, that Dr. Lustig's latest book not only has an intriguing title, but also makes a fascinating read, and I highly recommend it to everybody interested in learning what drives our behaviors and how corporate America has learned to hijack the biological mechanisms underlying these drives. Um, so let me start with the with first question. Um, after your uh, uh, last book, um, which obviously was focused on um, the evils of the, the food components or the composition of our North American diet, what what made you write uh, made you write this second book? Well, Fat Chance was about diet and physical health, but while I was researching it, it became very clear that there was this huge literature on diet and behavioral health, much of which, of course, you know about, and you've actually uh, invoked this intermediary, the gut microbiome, in terms of how food does affect our behavioral health. Um, I've known about the dopamine serotonin connection, which I talk about in the book for about 30 some odd years. I did my postdoctoral fellowship in neuroscience back at Rockefeller University and knew about it then. But, you know, it wasn't until recently that we had the functional MRI and PET scanning and, you know, some of the uh, good solid genomics and epidemiology to explain a lot of this work. Still, I wasn't particularly interested in writing uh, another book at that point, but I was giving psychiatry grand rounds at a major medical school here in the US. The um, head of the recovery uh, outpatient program gave me a tour of the facility. She herself was a recovering heroin addict, and I asked her, you know, straight out, you know, um, uh, you know, what being clean meant to her. And, and she said something that was really uh, querulous, that really stopped me in my tracks. She said, when I was shooting up, I was happy. What my new life has given me is pleasure. And I thought to myself, you know, that's exactly opposite. That's totally 180. Um, didn't say anything to her. Didn't want to, you know, sort of open that can of worms. But it really bothered me all the way home. So I called my friends in psychiatry here and I said, yeah, we hear that. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we hear that all the time. And I thought to myself, you know, I wonder how many people out there don't know the difference. And that's why I wrote the book. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it has wide-ranging implications, um, way, uh, you know, way beyond um, eating habits, because clearly those, those, um, this discovery by, by many big corporations of how to brain hack or hijack this, this reward system, this dopamine system in the brain, 
uh, can really be used for, for just about anything, for selling and, and getting people to. to and it has. You know, uh, it's, it's not new. <laughs> you know, there's been subliminal advertising for decades, you know, ever since um, Freud's nephew uh, discovered, you know, the field of public relations, you know, we have been marketed to in some fashion or other. Uh, but, you know, this particular new world we live in, you know, the, the, the hacking of that dopaminergic system is quite insidious. And uh, obviously, you know, certain behaviors uh, can be uh, uh, altered, uh, as we've seen, you know, with Cambridge Analytica very recently. But, you know, the question, you know, that really bothered me is, particularly as an obesity specialist, you know, is what role does food play? And, you know, your understanding and your elucidation of the microbiome and the work from Jeff Gordon and Peter Turnbaugh, you know, demonstrating that, you know, the microbiome is malleable and, you know, can change almost on a dime, um, you know, really, you know, brings to the fore the, the, the question of, you know, are, are we eating right? And if we actually did eat right, uh, what good might actually come in this world? You know, so I'd like to ask you, do you see a, um, a set of arrows that point to the change in our diet back in the 1970s and the current problems that, you know, we as a society are dealing with today? That's a big question. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, certainly, you know. The nugget, the, the nugget, if you will. Yeah, so... I mean, in terms of uh, diet has having an effect on the mind and and on behavior. As you know, there's there's many intriguing animal studies, particularly primarily done in in mice and comparing mice that grow up without the, the real their the normal microbiome and, uh, and, and and normal mice um, that that have shown that you know a lot of emotional behaviors from depression like anxiety like social behavior. Uh, so-called nociceptive or pain-like behavior, that they all can, are, are in some way dependent on the influence of the gut microbiome. If we, if you look at the animal data, and it goes all the way back to the fruit fly, that, you know, that uh, the ingestive behavior, what this fruit fly prefers, can be programmed from, from through the gut microbiota. But particularly in, in mice, it's been shown that um, you know, germ-free animals have a different eating behavior than ones that have a normal uh, microbiome. Um, so I would say um, it's still it's still a guess what role this has plays played in 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 humans. But the the models that have been proposed based on the the animal data is, is kind of intriguing. And I was really curious to hear your opinion on that because, as you, as you know, there's a there's 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 a lot of work that's been done with these high fat diets in in uh, in mice so that's pretty much a 60% fat diet or 60% lard diet so right. many of these studies that have shown um, that mice that's the, the fed such a diet changed their eating behavior um, the the vagus nerve sensitivity in the gut that normally senses satiety hormones gets down regulated um, the mucus layer shrinks uh, Microbes have more access to the to the mucosal lining, to the gut immune system. This could lead to this metabolic toxemia. Um, so, if you look at these mechanisms, well established in in animal models, um, 
it it's 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 hard not to say or it's it it's hard to deny that um that the diet can have a major influence of of our entire satiety mechanism um and by down regulating the normal satiety mechanisms then the reward system is sort of less restrained and kicks in and um can then become the dominant hedonic eating or, or uh, food addiction that the people have used my question has always been and i've not really have to say i've not gotten the right answer from colleagues that work with in these animal models this high high fat diet um has probably the most science behind it that this is an offender um well, but but but, it, but it's not known if because when when you change the fat content like this you also change dramatically the other components so particularly the fiber and well and that's what a, one of the things i wanted to bring up is that you mentioned that the high fat diet is a 60% fat diet that's correct now pretty much protein is the same across most diets you know between 15 and 20% you can you know sort of ratchet it up to 20 if you if you try hard in animals and in humans but that means that there's still a 25% carbohydrate component to that high fat diet so a high fat diet really isn't a high fat diet it's a high fat high carbohydrate and often it's a high sugar diet because animals don't really like it that much and so they have to lace it with some sucrose in fact i was just reviewing a paper that was uh you know dealing with this high fat diet and so i looked up the control um uh uh diet you know from the company you know for the high fat diet and it's laced with sugar there it's five percent sucrose now why is there sucrose in a high fat diet so it very well may be that what we're studying is the cafeteria diet which clearly is problematic but you know we have an enormous amount of literature especially in the uh, endocrinology and diabetes literature now looking at truly low carb high fat diets 80 10 10 you know where you know there's there's it's extraordinarily minimal in terms of carbohydrate and the effects are virtually opposite um, that, you know, you get weight loss, you get improvement in metabolic health, you get resolution of many symptoms. This is one of the reasons why the ketogenic diet has, you know, all of a sudden seen this enormous uh, 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 surge in popularity. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the data are supportive, uh, at least uh, acutely. You know, we'll have to wait and see. But Verta Health which is uh, a company that uh, has basically sprouted forth based on a ketogenic diet. They have data now one year out on a ketogenic diet and 80% of their di the diabetics in the study have come off medication and are now metabolically normal and have lost enormous amounts of weight. So I, you know, we, we talk about these diets like they're on polar extremes. In fact, they all tend to meet in the middle. And, and you know, uh, Christopher Gardner uh, from Stanford showed very nicely, after two months, doesn't matter what diet you're on, you're, you're back on your own diet. Uh, you know, yeah, no, they regress to the mean is what they do. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, you know, you, know, you can make an argument for that, that everything is related to fiber. Um, so, you know, my colleague and friend, Justin Sonnenberg, uh, you know, mm -hmm. makes that case. Um, yeah. 
I kind of tend to go in the same direction. I have to say that, and, and, and I think everybody agrees that a high fiber, that our diet lacks the high fiber content. Um, but then you can, as you just said, you know, you, you can make a very strong case about the ketogenic diet. Um, these, these relative benefits of fiber, fat, and well, benefits and negatives of, of fiber, fat, and sugar. Um, I, I think the reason we see so much problems in our society now is because all three of them have been altered from their, you know, from 50 years ago in, in, right. in pretty dramatic ways. Yeah. I would argue that, you know, the, the, the transition from real food to processed food has had uh, enormous uh, 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 alterations, not just in our health. Uh, I think that's reasonably well established, but I think it has had alterations in, you know, really how we view the world uh, in terms of, you know, things that make us happy, things that uh, alter our, you know, collective versus individual behaviors. Um, example is this uh, story of the Chinese Han farmers, you know, about the fact that if you're above the Yangtze River, you know, you have a very individualistic uh, uh attitude, whereas if you're below the Yangtze River, it's much more of a communal, you know, uh, help each other attitude, having to do with wheat versus rice, and it may be because of the water level, or maybe because, you know, of the of, of the, how you eat the wheat, which is, you know, usually is bread as opposed to rice. So it's, it's not... It's not entirely clear to me yet what the specifics are. There's also the possibility, and, you know, clearly, the microbiome plays a role in how your brain works, but it may even be the placenta that determines this. There's new data out in animals that shows that if you put a pregnant female rat on a high sugar diet, when those neonatal rat pups come out, they are already programmed to search for and increase their uh, consumption of sugar afterward. Um, you know, that, that, that to me is extraordinarily uh, worrisome. Uh, whether or not the microbiome changed, well, I suppose, but, you know, it's, you know, presumably from a neonatal programming standpoint. Um, you know, we always thought that sugar didn't cross the placenta because uh, the placenta doesn't have the GLUT5 transporter. But you know what? It's got the GLUT7, 8, and 11 transporters, which actually transport fructose better blue mm. five transporter so i think we've missed the boat here and i think that we have in our uh rush to you know introduce processed food for the for the almighty dollar and you know to be able to um export our you know the processed food around the world um i think we've uh, i think we've uh, changed society uh, immeasurably uh and I'm, I'm i'm quite concerned about how one gets that back yeah, this is this is the big question. As it's, it's you know, so you know, um, there's there's these graphs that I'm coming back to the to the role of the microbiome in in, in, in these changes, which is, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's it's an intermediary, uh, but this progressive decline in the diversity and abundance of the the microorganisms living inside of us who play a big role in in transforming many food components into absorbable. Um, or neuroactive or inflammatory uh, molecules, mm -hmm. that that progressive decrease is ongoing. 
And you know, if, if one looks at the microbiome as an ecosystem, as a lot of people do, um, we know that ecosystems can have a certain resilience, um, but at some point when the diversity goes below a critical point, um, then you know, the, the, the system collapses. And, and I just wonder, you know, there's a, there's a few indications for that, what's happening, what we see like the obesity epidemic, if the microbiome plays a big role in this, we don't know that, you know, 100%. Sure. Um, but that could be one, one factor. And, you know, mm-hmm. as Western trained physicians, we don't think in terms of ecosystems, we really think in, in, in terms of um, particularly gastroenterologists of individual polyps that we can cut out and, and, and deal with the, with the problem. Yeah. Um, but this phenomenon, and, and another phenomenon that, you know, the unexplained increase in um, the C. difficile colitis, um, mm-hmm. which could be very similar. This is essentially a collapse of the microbial ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why is that increasing? People have always gotten antibiotics, and but why is that increasing? Um, could be another manifestation of, of this trend. I'm, as you are, very concerned that some of these trends, so we, first of all, we haven't paid attention to them. Secondly, we don't really know how to reverse them. Um, and if you don't, if you can't do anything about it, there's still the traditional way now, many microbiome scientists and startup companies in this, in this business, in, in, in this area, to just to target individual microbes. Uh, they're, they're less concerned about, you know, the overall ecological balance and the, um, but it's like targeting individual, either transplanting them or um, right. knocking them out. So I, I, I think our medical paradigm uh, has, needs to change in order to, um, you know, to, to sort of have any hope that this trend can be reversed. Well, let me, you know, obviously the gut microbiome is extraordinarily important, but I'll give you another microbiome that has uh, seen um, uh, changes and we can correlate that with disease and that's the oral microbiome. Now you can make the argument, well, they're all alimentary, but in fact, the oral microbiome is uh, quite unique. Um, It had even a greater number of phyla uh, involved, uh, you know, based on DNA samples from fossils that have been obtained, you know, from teeth. And I'm sure you're aware that um, cavities were virtually unknown to, you know, uh, ancients. Uh, uh, you know, th- they've looked for, you know, dental caries in, in you know, all of these, uh, you know, 25,000, you know, 50,000 year old skulls. And it's virtually non-existent. And when they did the, when they do the oral microbiome um, genetic profiles, uh, they see that, you know, there are 10,000, you know, 50,000 different species. But when you look at um, skulls uh, since the Industrial Revolution, that number has gone down significantly by a factor of about 50. Um, And there's one predominant uh, interloper that was never there before, but is now. And it's strep mutans. Mm. Strep mutans is the, you know, the most uh, lactic acid producing bacterium and it loves sugar. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the case of the oral microbiome, we can translate the change in our diet to the change in the bacteria, to the change in disease process. Now we ignored it because we had this thing called fluoride. 
But the yeah. fact is, you know, it was the canary in the coal mine. And the dentists are now on board. You know, for years, they were worried. Once fluoride came along, they were thinking, you know, who's going to fill the seats? You know, so they used to give lollipops, at, you know, after uh, uh, dental cleanings you know, to kids. Um, I remember getting lollipops. <laughs> That's because everyone hated the dentist. So, you know, they had to do something. But the um, fact is that the um, dental community is now on board, you know, that this is a public health problem, that this is a dental problem. And I'll be very honest with you. I mean, my, my unstated goal going forward, um, you know, now that I'm um, emeritus uh, and clinically retired, is to try to get the medical community, the dental community, and the dietary, you know, dietitian community to speak with one voice so that we can have some um, power in Washington to actually try to, you know, mitigate this and help reverse this uh, epidemic uh, that, you know, seems to know no end. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent point. I mean, that, you know, the answer may, may lie uh, not in the research labs, because we do know a lot of these things, but really in the politicians. Um, one... Um, you know, one, one major reason that we have so much sugar, that everything is saturated with sugar is the, the subsidization of, of, the, of growing corn and producing the high fructose corn syrup. Um, but remember, remember what, we, what we subsidize are commodities. And commodities are storable food. And there's an easy way to make a food storable, remove the fiber. So not only do we have a high sugar diet, we have a very low fiber diet. So I would like to talk about what fiber actually does in the intestine. And as a gastroenterologist, you know, this is, you know, shall we say, right up your alley. <laughs> um, hopefully not up your colon, but up your alley. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of how does the introduction or the removal of fiber actually affect the energy metabolism of the intestinal flora? And, you know, why does it change so quickly? Also, on that same question, why is it that you have to give probiotics twice a day if they're probiotics? Why don't they take you know, why don't you just need one dose? Yeah, so I mean, first talking about the fiber, I mean, clearly um, it's, so as a gastroenterologist in training, I still remember the days, you know, where we thought fiber is a bulk forming, um, uh, is, 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 is a way to create bulk in the, yeah, make in the, in the intestine and, and promote bowel movements. I mean, that was kind of the main rationale for doing this. And it, I, I think it's still in the mind of some people. Yeah. Um, so in the meantime, we know obviously that fiber is the natural food for, for the majority of the, of the microbes um, and their abundance and diversity will go up with the abundance and diversity of different types of uh, fiber, not just one. Um, as you know, we used to give like Metamucil, just one synthetic fiber, but there's obviously hundreds of different molecules um, in different types of, of, of plant-based foods. Um, and not only do, do the numbers and the diversity go up, but also um, it increases certain uh, taxa, like this, an organism called Acamansia mucinophilia, that has the ability to stimulate cells in the colonic lining to produce mucus. Now, why is that mucus important? I mean, it's 
people, it's become very popular now to talk about the leaky gut and everybody thinks, well, there's this holes in the gut lining. Well, there's really two components to it. One is the, the actual lining, the cells that line the gut and they're very tightly connected to each other. But equally important are two layers of, of mucus on top of that. Um, and they're important for two reasons. One is they separate the microbes from direct contact with the lining of the gut and the um, and uh, have access to the immune system. That's just microns underneath the epithelial layer. Um, and and uh, and and the second one is um, the the outer layer. That's where a lot of the microbes live in. They, they don't float around in the in, in in the lumen of the gut, but they're they're really that's their habitat. So if, if you go on a low fiber diet, um, this Acamantia species decreases, uh, no longer stimulates mucus production. Um, the whole thing shrinks and that contributes significantly. Then you, you get the access of the microbes to the lining. There's reactions, immune reactions with the innate immune system. Um, ultimately it leads to the leaky gut where you have both compromised mucus layer and a permeable epithelial layer. And that's probably the main, I, I personally think it's kind of a unifying principle and in many chronic Western diseases that have increased um, that we have this low grade inflammation in, in, the, in, in the gut. I mean, 40% of the body's immune system is located um, in, in this really precarious location, just very closely adjacent to trillions of microbes. Um, and that this immune activation doesn't just stay in the gut, but it goes, it spreads to other organs. So components, cell wall components of microbes uh, or cytokines or, or other inflammatory molecules go to the fat tissue, to, uh, to the heart, you know, the, the, the whole um, story about um, coronary vascular disease being, being an inflammatory process. Um, and also to the, to the brain. So this mm -hmm. idea of neuroinflammation that when the brain receives these inflammatory molecules that circulate in the systemic circulation, it, it activates the brain's own uh, immune system. And, you know, there's about the same number of immune-like cells in the brain as nerve cells. Most sure. of the dendritic cells, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware. Um, you had, I had mentioned, you know, the loss of the mucin layer, you know, due to um, uh, the lack of fiber. Um, there's another thing that uh, has been added to processed food that can uh, do that as well, and that's the emulsifiers. Mm. You know, in order to be able to keep fat and water together, which you have to do if you're going to put it in a microwave, in order to microwave a lasagna, you know, you've got to let the fat and water, you know, stay in a solution together. Otherwise, they would layer out. Um, uh, carboxymethylcellulose, polysorbate 80. Uh, my favorite, carrageenan. You know, which is the reason yeah. ice cream holds together. By the way, a little aside, do you know who introduced carrageenan to ice cream? No, I don't. Margaret Thatcher. Is that true? Yep. Okay. She was an ice cream chemist before she was a member of parliament. She was an ice cream chemist. That is really nice. Um, you know, the, uh, there's a paper from Israel from about uh, three, four years ago now, looking at those uh, emulsifiers and the, they had confocal microscopy showing that the uh, bacteria were directly opposed, APP, you know, opposed onto the um, 
onto the intestinal villi because the mucin layer had basically been wiped out by the emulsifier. So it may be the, you know, the, the lack of fiber in terms of the lack of the stimulus for production of the mucin. And it may also be the emulsifier in terms of, you know, the detergent that washes it away. Yeah, so I mean, the mucus layer didn't seem to be a very exciting area of research when I started my career, but it's clearly become, you know, one, like a major area of interest now because it, it, it's so this, this common final pathway for, for multiple dietary things that, that, that have a negative effect on our health. I mean, just a couple more things about the fiber. Um, so one is many of these changes in our diet in modern diet are um, coming hand in hand because you have the decrease in the fiber, you have the increase in sugar, increase in fat, um, and the addition of chemicals, um, the, the xenobiotics that, that either have the effect directly on, like, on something like the mucus layer or on, on, uh, on the microbes who can metabolize many of these chemicals that they've never seen. So we don't know even what the, the end result of that process is. So we think it's the, um, like glyphosate, for example, is a, is a good example. Mm -hmm. Glyphosate by itself, it's been shown not to be harmful for the mammalian um, host. But if it's processed or if it's metabolized by the by the microbes, that that it most likely has long-term negative effects. And, and I think many other examples will 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 be, will be shown. The an, an interesting observation was that I've seen when 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 mice are raised on a fiber-free diet, their um, their diversity abundance goes down, the mucus layer changes. Um, if then they um, I mean, once this is compromised, the next generation will have similar changes. So it's it's an epigenetic phenomenon. It, it does not just affect you know the, the the parents, but it goes and it keeps worsening as generations go on. Uh, whereas if you look at a uh, in at, at at mice on a regular diet with high fiber, each generation has the same kind of uh, you know uh, microbiome host in, uh, interactions. Along the same lines, um, mice that have been raised on this fiber-free diet and then were given prebiotics um, were not able to get back to the same level of um, right. you know, microbial diversity as, as uh, mice that have been on a, on a, on a high-fiber diet. So I, I think what we see today, and this is a little bit of a warning sign as well, you know, everybody's... Um, swears on their special probiotic and prebiotic. Um, yeah. But while we're on this unhealthy trend of, of, of a low fiber diet, that may not really do much. Well, my concern is that the pro probiotics are basically trying to replenish what's missing. But the question is, why were they missing in the first place? Is because the environment didn't support their growth. And my, my thought is it's because there was no fiber to support their growth. So if you add a probiotic onto a, you know, a, a, an unchanging uh, background diet, don't expect very much. Mm. And one of the reasons why people keep taking and taking it and expecting something good to happen. And, you know, to be honest with you, not that much good happens. On the other hand, it would, would appear to be that if you just put fiber back in the diet as the prebiotic to allow for 
the growth of those you know more fragile species like bacteroides. Um, you uh, could you know effectuate the changes without having to resort to you know repeated doses of probiotics. I've also noticed, you know, I mean, people are very interested in the role of probiotics in, you know, mitigating immune phenomena. But what I've read, and, you know, this is a big issue here at UCSF, and I've got several colleagues who are investigators looking at, you know, can we ameliorate asthma? Can we change eczema, atopic dermatitis, et cetera? And what they said, what they've shown is basically if you give the probiotic and you don't change the diet, nothing happens. Yeah, no, well, it's, I, I think it goes along the same. I mean, it's, it's always easier for, for, for people and for patients, you know, not make major lifestyle changes, but... Um, Take a pill. Buy supplements. I mean, it's, it's the same model. It's a yeah. pharmaceutical model that works really well, I think, now for... Um, and, and, and I personally, I mean, I, I have a problem with it. We, we don't know. At, at this point, there's very few studies, um, and the studies that do exist are small. Um, if if there's really a major impact um, of, of, of any of these supplements really on the overall uh, health of, of, of the person who is taking them. Right. I, I'm a strong believer in the, in the placebo effect, um, which I don't see as a negative. I actually see this as one of the more exciting things that we physicians use all the time, consciously even. And um, so I, I think what a lot of those supplements do, and I, I was gonna come with a second, question related to this what, what what most of them do is they make you feel better you, you're doing something every morning um, and it reinforces this um, this effect that you just feel better just because your your brain can generate those 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 molecules just a couple of weeks ago i had this interview with uh, uh, wayne jonas uh, i don't know if you know him he's the, the director of the samuel um um, foundation, uh, you know, we've sponsored, supported a lot of integrative medicine activities and actually building a facility in the medical school of UC, um, uh, of UC Irvine. And uh, so he, he came out with this book, How Healing Works. Um, and his stand, I mean, he's been a scientist, he's, he was in the military, you know, he's very, um, he, he was the head of NCAM at the NIH, a lot of experience over the years. He's come to the conclusion that a lot of, maybe most of the effects of the, the kind of interventions we do for chronic disease um, in terms of pills or, you know, supplements, right. is really related to the placebo effect and the better you can deliver it, the more effective it is. I mean, what do you think about that? I think? Well, I, what I would say is that each one of those pills is directed to a symptom. So hypertension is a symptom, okay? It is not a disease by itself. It is a symptom of a bigger disease, okay? It is directed against high blood sugar, which is a symptom of a bigger disease. Now that disease has this name, which people don't understand called metabolic syndrome, but these are all the diseases of metabolic syndrome. The problem is you can't treat the symptom, you have to treat the cause. And treating the symptom basically just covers up the symptom without actually dealing with the cause. So it shouldn't be too surprising that when you actually look at the overall and cardiovascular mortality of statins, it's not there. When you look at whether or not, you know, um, antihypertensives change blood pressure, it 
changes it a little bit, but you know, the fact of the matter is people die of their disease anyway. The most famous of these issues is giving insulin to diabetics. So giving insulin to diabetics lowers blood glucose. No argument. Microvascular pathology, you know, the retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy all get better. And the patient dies just the same. And the reason is because you haven't dealt with the you know, signal process, which is the hyperinsulinemia insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Because the hyperinsulinemia drives vascular smooth muscle proliferation, cancer growth, et cetera. And so, yeah, you die with better arteries, you know, arterioles, but you die just the same because you haven't actually dealt with the problem. So the way I state it is you can't fix healthcare until you fix health. You can't fix health until you fix diet and you can't fix diet until you know what the hell is wrong. Very good statement. Um, let me ask you one question. I, I, I don't want to um, dwell too much on this, but um, you know, I have any opportunity. I'd like to get into the brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So one, uh, you know, I mean, talking about diet and, and, and the brain, as you know, um, it's been proposed that um, the non-celiac gluten sensitivity plays um, plays a big role in, in many chronic brain diseases and symptoms. Um, so a wide range of symptoms from chronic fatigue to chronic pain have been uh, depression, cognitive decline have been uh, you know, proposed that uh, they involve this, this um, unusual reaction to, to, to dietary gluten. What, I mean, what do you think about it? What is your opinion on that? You know, um, you actually probably have a better handle on that than I do as a you know, gastroenterologist. You know, we take care of plenty of patients with celiac disease because, you know, celiac and type one diabetes, you know, have a very close association. So we have, we have a combination diabetes celiac clinic. So we certainly understand celiac disease, but we have a biomarker for celiac disease. We have blood tests, we have, you know, a, uh, you know, we can do uh, a small bowel biopsy and we can prove that the patient has celiac disease. This non-celiac gluten sensitivity continues to remain cryptic. Um, uh, And I think it's going to stay very cryptic until we find what the pathogenesis of this is and find the biomarker to be able to monitor this process. The only paper I have seen that may start addressing the question was from Alessio Fasano at Mass General. And he had some white cells frozen away from people who were proven non-celiac gluten sensitivity, gluten intolerance. And he assessed those um, white cells in vitro and apparently they had a different um, antigenic uh, profile and you know may uh, you know have um, altered their cytokine production on the basis of you know PHA stimulation and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's conceivable it's conceivable that there is some metabolic or infectious or immunologic defect that is you know at the heart of this. But until we understand it, I think we're just going to be out in the field. Yeah, I've been fascinated. So every time you know I go to Europe, um, um, France, or uh, Germany, I ask people because bread is a big thing in these countries. And yes. So I always ask, you know, I mean, like, like the French, have you changed your your habit of uh, getting f- fresh bread three times a day from the baker? Um, and 
you know, I've not heard a single person who would say they that, that they've ever experienced or even right. know somebody who has. So it's something that appears to be primarily happening in the U.S. And yeah. that's a very intriguing question. You know, why is that? Well, uh, I'm not going to be able to tell you the answer to that. But uh, yes, that is absolutely true. It seems to be a U.S. phenomenon. So, you know, since you were born in Germany, you're from Munich, right? Yeah, yeah. Love Munich, yeah. <laughs> bread, bread and beer, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, that's all fermented <laughs> when you think about it. Um, so the, the the question is, if you buy a loaf of bread at a bakery, how soon before it stales? Two days. Yeah. If you buy a, a loaf of commercially available bread at the grocery store, how long before it stales? Three yeah. weeks. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it's it's it's, it's like the, the food additives. It's it's the processing. And, uh, you know. So so do you know what the primary food additive is that allows for that bread to stay springy? Gluten or sugar? Sugar. Sugar. It d displaces the water. It's called water activity. Since it doesn't boil off, it holds on to water molecules, you know, just because of its, you know, polar nature. And so um, it will keep the bread um, fresh, quote unquote, for a lot longer. Now, there are also other things in it, of course, you know, but you can even buy organic bread that will last three weeks. So the presumption is it's not the BHT or the BHA or, you know, uh, you know, some other, you know, uh, compound you can't pronounce, but it very well might be the sugar itself. Um, I can't answer that. I can't tell you that for sure. So you, you, you brought up the uh, issue of the tight junctions, you know, the zonulins that hold the intestinal epithelium together. And of course, in celiac disease, those zonulins are clearly dysfunctional and the cells you know, break, you know, lose the tight junctions. Things can get across very easily, such as bacteria or endotoxins, et cetera, causing inflammation. No argument. Here's a question, and I don't know the answer to it. And I've asked many people, but I'm going to ask you the question because I think it's a question worth thinking about. If you consume a high sugar diet, you have all of that glucose going in, that's true, but you also have all that fructose going in. Now, fructose has to be phosphorylated. Fructose mm. one phosphate. In the process, ATP becomes ADP. So you lose energy. If you, the zonulins are an energy dependent process, you know, that they're ATP dependent process. If you're losing ATP, could you end up with dysfunction of those onulins and lose the ability of those tight junctions to work properly. And could that be underlying or perhaps potentiating this issue of leaky gut, autoimmune disease, chronic inflammation, changes in behavior, changes in dementia, et cetera, et cetera. Very interesting point. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've not pursued that scientifically myself, so I, I mean, it's a plausible hypothesis. I, I think, uh, I mean, is there data that supports this? That so Bruce Ames and Mark Shiganaga over at Children's Oakland Research Institute, you know, are very interested in this potential issue. Certainly, we know that 
in the brain, the neuroenergetics of fructose metabolism causes ATP depletion. And that very well may have something to do with beta sheeting because the beta sheet is a lower energy state than an alpha helix. It also takes energy to maintain that alpha helical conformation. So if you're somehow depleting energy in pretty much any tissue, you're going to get cellular dysfunction. And um, you know, I'm not saying you know fructose is alone in this. I think there are probably other players as well, but it's probably the thing that's gone up so high you know, compared to other things in our diet that might be, uh, you know, sort of at the, at the root cause of this uh, energy depletion syndrome. I mean, energy and the sense of energy, you know, is something that I hear a lot from my patients and it's come, um, you know, so people have gone on, for example, on the ketogenic diet. They, it's, it doesn't help too much with their, or even, you know, even the gluten-free diet. Some say, oh, my energy has surged and, you know, I'm a, I'm a different person. I still have my IBS symptoms. That's why they come to see me. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a different person. So there's probably many of those mechanisms, like this ATP depletion is a very interesting one, that could underlie this that we haven't really paid attention to. And probably the majority, certainly of gastroenterologists, would dismiss it as something, you know, uh, neurotic of that of that patient, but I, I think it's yeah. it, it 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 just shows how little we we know about these interactions, and it it wasn't necessary to think about this 50 years ago because people weren't on such an extreme diet. But today, it's it's definitely something that you know probably plays a major role. Well, so, so I, I wanna I wanna actually circle back to the thing you just said about it being neurotic, you know. We heard this for years. We heard this for decades, you know, you know, it's psychosomatic, you know, your brain's making you think you're sick. Well, the fact of the matter is that's probably true, except that it probably started in the gut and that this is actually a feed forward system where defects in the gut le led to changes in the brain, which manifest now as symptoms, say, in the gut. And so while, you know, we had, you know, one uh, loop of the negative feedback, uh, of the feedback pathway, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's because of you and, and other people who are studying the, this, you know, mind-gut connection that we have, you know, now, you know, reason to understand the other loop. And so I would argue, you know, you know no doctor should be using the word neuroticism or yeah. psychosomatic or anything else in today's day and age when we know so much more than we did say 40 years ago absolutely um so let me just uh, you know i think we've come to kind of to the end of our talk i, I just want to emphasize you know show your your book i would highly recommend it to everybody and before we close um i would like to you to um just say very briefly, you, you come out with recommendations at the end of your book, the four C's. Could, could you, um, sure. I think that would make a good closure of, of our conversation, so. Sure, and every one of those C's helps your gut. <laughs> I'll say that right at the beginning. Um, ultimately, my, my book is about the biochemistry of behavioral health. 
and what's happened to it over the last 40 years uh, and how corporations have sort of uh, gotten uh, into our guts, our brains, um, and we're not the same as we were and we're way worse off for it. Um, ultimately, got to up your serotonin to increase your contentedness, your happiness. You've got to tamp down your dopamine because a runaway dopamine train is addiction. You know, lack of serotonin is depression. Um, you got to basically turn it around. And it turns out that all the things that raise your serotonin and down your dopamine are free. They're things your mother told you. They're things that, you know, you forgot about while you were drinking a Coca-Cola, you know, while, you know, texting on your cell phone. You know, the fact is, you know, these things are with us. And it's the reason why anyone, no matter how much money they have, can be happy and should be. And the four, they are the four C's. The first one, connect. And connect does not mean Facebook. Connect means, like we're doing right now, eye to eye, face to face, interaction, connection. And the reason that why that's important is we have a set of mirror neurons in our occipital cortex you can actually record from. And what they're doing is they're reading the emotions of the person you're talking to in real time. Paul Ekman, psychologist from UC Berkeley, one of the most famous psychologists around, went to Papua New Guinea. They'd never seen a white person. They had the exact same facial expressions for the same emotions because it's baked into our DNA. This is how we are social creatures, is through this process of interpreting facial expressions. But you need your eyes for that. And this process has a name, it's called empathy. And if you can't do it, you are a psychopath. Think about that. <laughs> Next time you're in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I don't want to make a comment, a political comment. <laughs> um, so um, connect. A, a, a good example of how this works is religion. So everybody, you know, has their own view of religion. And in fact, there are 4,200 religions on the planet. Why are there so many religions? Well, it turns out there's only one thing all religions share. Community. Meeting place. Okay, for other worshipers to worship with you. And that's on purpose because that's the community, that's the connection, that's the peace, the contentedness of being part of a larger body than yourself, connecting in that way. Now, once the pastor or the rabbi or the imam starts opening their mouth, that's the dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> that's what gets you, you know, zealous. That's what, you know, that, that's, that's what drives you over the edge. All right. So that's one, connect. Two, contribute. And that does not mean to your bank account. This has to be outside of yourself, okay? In a selfless method of contribution uh, can be altruism, philanthropy, you know, uh, 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 you know, something you do for somebody else. Now, a lot, most people want to know, you know, can work count as contribution? And the answer is yes. As long as you can see how your work helps others and your boss can see it too. So you and I, you know, we get our contentedness from our contribution. Because I'll tell you, University of California sure ain't paying us for this. <laughs> it's true. Number three, cope. And that means uh, sleep, mindfulness, and exercise. So Currently, 35% of American adults get less than seven hours of sleep per night, and 23% are clinical insomniacs. 
And the problem is if you don't get enough sleep, you can't generate the serotonin. You also eat more and you tend to eat more of the wrong stuff, upping your dopamine and downing your tryptophan, which is the precursor to serotonin. And so sleep is absolutely essential. Also, mindfulness. The single most dangerous word in the English language is multitasking. And the reason is because only 2.5% of the population can actually do it. Everybody else is serially unitasking. And every time they switch from one task to another, they're getting a cortisol bump and it's actually frying their prefrontal cortex, making their dopamine uh, uh, even more accentuated and really driving them toward abusive substances, behaviors, addictions. And then finally, exercise. And it turns out exercise is as potent as SSRIs at alleviating depression. And if you combine mindfulness plus exercise, you reverse depression without medication. And then finally, number four, cook. And that should be relatively obvious because the precursor to serotonin is tryptophan. It is the rarest amino acid. It's only found in reasonable quantities in eggs, poultry, fish. Well, those aren't really components of processed food for the most part. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the amount of tryptophan you take in, you know, can ultimately modulate how much ultimately gets to the brain, but there are many steps in between. For instance, 90% of the tryptophan goes to serotonin in the gut. Another 9% goes to serotonin in platelets. And some of it gets converted to chiurinine if you're uh, in the liver, if you're in an um, inflammatory state. So getting that tryptophan up to the brain so it can be converted to serotonin is a trick in and of itself. But if you're not taking it in, forget about it. In addition, dopamine is one of the things that lowers serotonin. And that is, you know, the precursors phenylalanine and tyrosine. And that is in great abundance in our diet. And then um, uh, we're also, uh, omega-3 fatty acids are important because they're anti-inflammatory. If you look at omega-3 deficient animals, there's a inflammatory haze around the synaptic bouton where the serotonin receptors are. And that goes away when you give the omega-3s back. And omega-3s again are in, you know, um, algae-fed marine life, you know, small fish, and or wild salmon, not farmed salmon. So again, processed food being a problem. And then lastly, um, sugar. And sugar basically is sort of the you know thing that made processed food okay, except it's the thing that makes processed food dangerous. So connect, contribute, cope, and cook. And we would all be a whole lot happier. And you know what, so would our intestinal microbiota. Are you an optimist? Do you think with those four C's, we can reverse this, uh, this current trend um, that both of us look at very, you know. Um... Only if politicians adopt the four C's. <laughs> as, long as, they, as long as they're as corrupt and as bought off as they currently are. I think that, you know, this is a public health problem. This is not a personal responsibility issue. From, I'll tell you what I think would be the thing that could happen. Get rid of the food subsidies. Just get rid of them. There's no economist on the planet that believes in food subsidies because they distort the market. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Libertarians 
don't even believe in food subsidies. This is something that everyone could get behind. So you'd say, wait, the food industry would stop making money. No, because you got to eat. They would just make money selling the right stuff instead of the wrong stuff. So if there was one sort of magic bullet, you know, one swing of the hammer to try to fix the problem, I would get rid of food subsidies. Okay, great. Well, let's end our conversation on this optimistic note. Um, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Um, oh, uh, as always, you know, <laughs> I, I, when I'm down in LA, I know where to, I know where to come find you. Absolutely. We'd, we'd love to host you here. And well, thanks, Dr. Bostic, and um, uh, thank you. talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Mm -hmm.